Ford is selling its Jaguar and Land Rover businesses to India's Tata Motors. The $2.3 billion deal, less than half the price that struggling Ford paid for the two luxury brands, had been in the works for months. Ford bought Jaguar for $2.5 billion in 1989 and Land Rover for $2.7 billion in 2000. In June 2008, Tata Motors announced the acquisition of Jaguar and Land Rover from Ford Motor Company for $2.3 billion. In this episode, we will explore the key factors and the critical moments that shaped the negotiations between Tata and Ford. of global M&As fail. A similar failure rate would result in 22 million plane crashes every year. Research shows that an effective management of the negotiation process paves the way for a successful and durable M&A that creates value for all stakeholders. Global M&A negotiations puts in the shoes of CEOs and founders by revealing the stories and strategies behind major M&A negotiations. Ford Motors acquired Jaguar in 1989 for $2.5 billion and Land Rover in 2000 for $2.7 billion. However, over the years, Ford failed to derive the desired benefits from these acquisitions. When it acquired Jaguar, Ford planned to produce around 400,000 units a year to compete with Mercedes-Benz, Audi and BMW. But, in 2006, the sales of Jaguar reached only 61,000 units. Jaguar was basically perceived as an old man's car. Land Rover, on the other hand, was starting to deliver profits. 2006 was the worst year in Ford's history, with losses of $12.7 billion. Ford CEO Alan Mulally saw the two British brands as a drain on the company's financial and management resources as he tried to turn around Ford's operations. uh, Alan is the guy who saved it, coming from uh, Boeing. I know there's a lot of skepticism, uh, an airplane guy coming into the car world, blah, 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 because I guess Detroit is used to doing things a certain way. And uh, you came in with a new way of doing things, and it's, it's turned quite positive. After 37 years in Boeing, where he was hired out of college in 1969 and was twice passed over for the top job, Alan Mulally was named president and CEO of Ford Motor Company in September 2006. It was the worst year for the company in its century-long history. Whenever Mulally was asked whether or not Ford would make it, his answer was always that it was a race against the clock. In spite of the support of Bill Ford, the great-grandson of the company founder Henry Ford, Mulally faced strong internal resistance and skepticism due to his lack of automotive experience. On the other hand, Although Mulally lacked extensive auto-industry knowledge, he was free of many intellectual biases and habits that have gotten Ford into such financial troubles. 
In order to turn the company around, non-core units such as Jaguar and Land Rover had to be sold. They're competing with the best companies in the world. They also had become a house of brands. They had purchased Aston Martin, and Jaguar, and Land Rover, and Volvo, a 33% equity position in Mazda, in addition to Ford and Lincoln. The news reported five potential bidders for Jaguar and Land Rover, Hyundai, Renault-Nissan, and three private equity firms, Cerberus, the new owners of Chrysler, Ripplewood Holdings, led by former Chrysler executive Thomas Tolkamp, and One Equity Partners, the private equity arm of JP Morgan, led by Jack Nesser, the former CEO of Ford. Ford was very concerned about selling Jaguar and Land Rover to a company that would look after the workers' interests. Since the UK was Ford's second largest market, the interests of the unions had to be taken into account during the negotiations. In addition, Ford also decided to sell Jaguar and Land Rover as a package, without separating the two brands, for two main reasons. First, Jaguar and Land Rover have been fully integrated since 2002. They share technologies, engineering teams, and support functions. Second, Land Rover had a brighter outlook than Jaguar. Trying to sell Jaguar on its own would be difficult. In light of these factors, the private equity bid for the two heritage brands could have been met with negative reactions from the British public opinion and Gordon Brown, the new Prime Minister. Yet, Ford expected to recapture at least the entire amount it spent on acquiring the two brands – $5.2 billion. from our party, including the minimum wage, telling us our politics should be run in this country. In early July 2007, Unite, the largest trade union in Britain, sent a five-point charter to Ford, demanding to be involved in the sale process. These were the requests of the union. First, no jobs will be shed at the three Jaguar and Land Rover factories and the two engineering sites, a total of 16,000 workforce. Second, Jaguar and Land Rover will be produced in Britain. Third, employee terms and conditions, including pensions, will be maintained. Fourth, the status quo in the engine sourcing agreement with Ford UK plants will be preserved. Lastly, the planned R&D investments will be maintained. What prompted the move abroad and, and what were some of the biggest challenges you faced in doing so? To a great extent, it was the, the issue of having the need to grow and a need to take a view that you'd grown in India in some cases with a fairly substantial market share and that as a group we ought to look beyond the shores of India to another economic cycle uh, in which we would operate another. There is a common misconception that takeovers must lead to layoffs and factory closures. But Tata has a history of merging in a different way. Tata has been careful in all its deals to signal respect for workers. Since its founding in 1868, the company has been controlled by a long-term shareholder structure which has prevented Tata from laying off workers or closing plants. 
It leaves executives in place and creates a joint management board that makes decisions on growth targets and talent development. According to Arun Mehra, Boston Consulting Group Chairman in India, Tata buys companies overseas not to reduce costs, but to improve its own capabilities. Between 2000 and 2008, Tata applied this approach to several overseas deals in different industries, from steel to energy, trucks, tea and coffee, in different continents, from Europe to the US and Asia. the sense of the family's commitment to give back? Well, uh, when I entered the family business, which was an accident, uh, I was going to live the rest of my life in the United States. Yes. Call back because my grandmother was ill. And when I joined, I... Educated in Mumbai's Catholic schools, Ratan Tata, the grandson of the founder of the company, left India at the age of 15 to attend high school in New York City. In 1955, Tata enrolled in Cornell University, earning a bachelor's degree in architecture in 1959. After graduation, Tata joined a small architectural consultancy firm in Los Angeles. While he had no intention of returning to India, he had to change plans when his grandmother, the woman that raised him after his parents' divorce, got sick. He then joined the Tata Group in 1961, starting on the shop floor at Tata Steel. After serving in several roles, he was appointed chairman of the Tata Group in 1991. Under his tenure, Tata expanded and globalized aggressively through more than 20 acquisitions. Additionally, he further increased the scope of the company philanthropic trust. a deal that is trying to build economies of scale in just one business and uh, just reach into new markets. It's a quite a differently motivated deal. And for Tata, it's uh, not the first time that they've reached for a brand with some prestige value as part of expanding their global visibility. Um, so I think viewed as an acquisition that they intend to learn a great deal from, uh, I think it could very well... At the end of August 2007, Ratan Tata confirmed his interest in Jaguar and the Land Rover, stating that maintaining their Britishness was crucial for their future success. As a result of the acquisition, Tata would gain access to international markets, a presence in the premium car segment, and most importantly, acquire know-how and technology. probably came into this deal those years ago thinking we're going to make money out of this, we're going to renew the brand, we're going to make it better, and they failed. Why should Tata necessarily succeed where Ford didn't? Tata, a lot of people don't know a lot about that company. It's a very large industrial conglomerate. Um, they actually manufacture trucks. Almost all the trucks on the Indian roads are made by Tata, and they make very, very cheap vehicles. So this is the first time Tata has ever actually gone into the luxury side of the car business. So I'm a little nervous about how they're going to transition from cheap cars to luxury automobiles. Due to Tata Motors' lack of experience and the competition of several prestigious brands within the luxury car segment, analysts doubted the company's ability to market Jaguar and the Land Rover. Even after spending over $10 billion in 18 years, 
Ford couldn't restore Jaguar's fortune. According to Morgan Stanley, buying Jaguar and Land Rover was value destructive for Tata, given the lack of synergies and the high cost involved. Finally, there was also widespread skepticism about an Indian company bidding for such iconic brands. In the words of Ken Gorin, head of Jaguar's American dealers, I don't believe the American public is ready for buying Jaguars out of India. international expansion though was not without some controversy and aside from the economic rationale there was also emotional consequences and I'm thinking here of the acquisition of Tetley Tea. Yeah. Uh, the idea of a, a beloved British tea brand being bought by an Indian company must have st stirred some hearts in England. And uh, if, if they did, uh, it was quite quiet and dignified. The more vocal one was... <laughs> <laughs> the more vocal one was when Jaguar and Land Rover got acquired. Right. Uh, and that was far more emotional and far more... Uh... In early June 2007, the Financial Times revealed news of the formal auction process for Jaguar and Land Rover. Three of the potential bidders for Jaguar and Land Rover were private equity firms. Because the UK market played a crucial role in the company's restructuring plan, Ford was more concerned with maintaining its image in the UK than maximizing the financial aspects of the deal. A number of very stringent conditions were placed on the sale of Jaguar and Land Rover, including the requirement that any buyer would keep the factories in Britain open for a significant period of time. In November 2007, Ford announced the three preferred bidders, Tata, Mahindra and Mahindra, the 21st largest company in India with revenues of $2.7 billion, and One Equity Partners, the private equity arm of JP Morgan, led by former Ford CEO Jack Nasser. Despite growing consensus among experts that Tata had an advantage over its two competitors, Tata Motors managing director Ravi Kant decided to proactively answer questions pertaining to the Britishness of the brands. A massive public relations effort was put together and Tata began to make presentations to workers, union representatives, members of parliament and local and government officials to diffuse widespread skepticism over an Indian company acquiring such iconic and luxury brands. The three preferred bidders were invited to meet with the unions on November 20, 2007. In order to win their confidence, labor leaders sought assurances that jobs and factories would be protected in the UK under the new owner. Tony Woodley, the union general secretary, was very impressed with Mahindra and Mahindra's CEO and chairman, Anand Mahindra presentation. Nevertheless, the union leaders moved to support Tata's bid, stating, Tata is the only company among the final bidders with enough resources, clout and industry knowledge. He also affirmed Tata's long-term commitment to the brands and his endorsement of the current management. An Indian company was going to take over uh, a vaulted two very venerable brands. Uh, what were they going to do with it? Yeah. Ford had made 
and not been able to make a profit with them. So what was this Indian company that had no experience in the premium car segment do with uh, such a company? Uh, concerned by the workers that we were going to close down plants and move them to India. Uh, and a general feeling that in England that another British brand was gone. Quite frankly, all we did after we got involved was to tell the management of the company to make their own destiny, that we'd support them in terms of what they wanted to do. Although the union's vote was not binding for Ford, it gave Tata a significant boost in the pursuit of Jaguar and Land Rover. If Ford wanted to meet the primary interest of not damaging its image in the UK, it had to sell to Tata. Prior to the November meeting, Tata has been informally courting union representatives. During initial meetings, Ravi Kant faced skepticism from the unions. Still, those concerns were erased after a second round of meetings, in which he committed to a five-year business plan and preserving jobs and plans in the UK. Union leaders finally supported Tata Motors because of its history in dealing with acquisitions. On January 3, 2008, Ford committed to focus negotiations with Tata Motors. According to experts, five key obstacles had to be resolved before deal completion. The first critical issue was the valuation of Jaguar, which in contrast to Land Rover was still losing money. The second issue pertained to the location of Jaguar and Land Rover headquarters. Even though Ravi Kent had several times reassured that the brands would preserve their Britishness. The third issue was whether Tata would keep the management in place beyond the short term. The fourth issue involved current suppliers. The unions and Ford required that the next owner continue to source components from existing Ford sites and suppliers. But the hardest issue concerned technology access. Both companies were likely to benefit from a long-term engine supply agreement. But then, how much was Tata willing to commit in terms of money and time to supply crucial powertrain components from Ford? On March 26, 2008, Ford entered a definitive agreement to sell Jaguar and Land Rover to Tata. The total amount to be paid in cash by Tata Motors for Jaguar and Land Rover was $2.3 billion. Concurrently, at closing, Ford had to contribute $600 million to the Jaguar and Land Rover pension plans. Therefore, Ford received $1.7 billion after the sale. The two companies also signed a five-year engine supply agreement. You know, Ford, of course, uh, sold the companies because they're in deep financial distress and they really needed cash now. Uh, Tata, there's can be dispute, I guess, about the, uh, you know, was the price too high or, or too low, but they certainly paid substantially less than Ford paid for those brands. And uh, by all accounts, Land Rover is profitable and uh, and Jaguar has, has, has made a, a strong comeback based on uh, building capabilities, improving quality. Uh, they have some interesting new products in the pipeline. So. Tata clearly identified Ford's main interest, preserving its image in the UK over maximizing the financial side of the deal, 
and cancelled the alternatives represented by Mahindra and Mahindra and One Equity Partners by building a coalition with the unions before entering into focused negotiations with Ford. Furthermore, it minimized any concern by the British public opinion and the new Labour government by clearly stating the intention of preserving the Britishness of the two brands. Last year, Jaguar Land Rover sold 376,000 vehicles, 299,000 Land Rovers and 77,000 Jaguars, with a total turnover of $22.5 billion. I hope to see you next month when we'll explore another M&A negotiation. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and visit our website, neglob.com. The Global M&A Negotiations Podcast is hosted by me, Jadvinder Singrana. Original music by Henrik Yule Jensen. <laughs>